Good evening. Andy Pickaholic. Andy. I've got four or five different people I share their stories. Let me pick one here. <laughs> Who in the room, other, what do we have? Jeff, the new guy in here? Welcome. Who else in the room's got less than 60 days? Keep your hands up. Okay. I like to, uh, you can put them down. When I share, it's, you know, you get nervous and you get lost and you lose track of where you're at. <clears throat> when that happens, I'm going to come back to one of you to just get me connected. Okay? That's, um, that's something I started doing a while back and, uh, it seems to work for me. So, if, um, if you feel like I'm talking right to you, it's because I am. All right? <clears throat> so, sobriety date is January 7th, 2008. Um, I sometimes have a hard time remembering that day, but January 6th is crystal clear. And I hope I never forget January 6th. So, we'll back up a little bit. We're going to talk. I'm going to cover a lot of topics. JJ cut into my time a little bit, so if we go over, this is my share tonight, not yours. <clears throat> There's, um, we're going to talk about some topics that my whole life were real uncomfortable. So we're going to talk about religion. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about just crazy shit, okay? Because I never talked about that stuff when I was going through it. But I've learned in uh, sobriety, I have to face that stuff and talk about it if I'm gonna if I'm gonna deal with it. So, so here we go. Um, born in the early '60s, I was born in a town of 480 people. My father, on June 5th of this year, celebrated 49 years of sobriety. So I grew I grew up in a house of AA. I would have told you. I got sober when I was 45. I would have told you when I was 44 that there's no way I could be an alcoholic because my dad had already, our house was sober. He immuned us from that, right? He got the vaccination shot or whatever you people did. I wasn't that. And um, I spent a big part of my life trying to prove that. So grew up in a small town. Um, Went to like five days of kindergarten because I had asthma really bad. <clears throat> had a mother that was a black belt Al-Anon, overprotective, took me to the doctor once a week. Um, she did. I grew up very protected and guarded by my mother, still to this day. I'm ten years younger than my brother, but when I got sober and was doing some, whatever you want to call it, reflection or actually listening to people talk about their lives, my mother had lost two children between me and my brother. So if you'd had two babies die at five and two, the next one that comes along might get smothered just a little bit. It gave me a whole different perspective on that. So grew up in a small town, um, played sports, um, fairly good at athletics, had a... Had a Scholarship to play football. I was a defensive back. I was going to go to Central Michigan. Um, I decided I wanted to work. So that was one of the first things I, I quit was football. I remember quitting that. And I had a coach that told me I was a loser. 
I was going to always be a loser if I didn't take that scholarship. And um, I set out for the rest of my life to prove him wrong. So skip ahead a few years. I was never a very good employee. So I'd get a job and I would just hate the boss. I was smarter than him. So why why would he be telling me stuff? So I remember um, I was 21 years old. I was working at a GM car dealership. And uh, I was a parts manager. Because when I hired in there at 18, when I was still in high school, the parts manager got fired for drunk driving. Couldn't drive, couldn't work, whatever. So I, I got uh, promoted to his job. Within 12 months, I quit that job. And I'm not drinking. I'm just young, arrogant, cocky, stupid. It had nothing to do with alcohol. But it did have to do with the way my life went, where nothing was ever good enough. And what I started to experience was I had this great job. So back in 1983, I'm making $30,000 a year driving a brand-new car because I got a demonstrator working at the dealership, and I walked out and quit one day. Actually, there was about seven of us that were going to walk out, and the idea was we were going to walk into the boss's office, tell him we're quitting, and we're going to meet down the road at the coffee shop, and then when he calls us all back, we'll renegotiate our deals. So I was the first one to go in, and I went in and I told him what I was doing. I walked out of his office, I went down to the coffee shop, and then about 4.30 in the afternoon, I figured they weren't coming. And nobody else showed up. So I went back down and said, well, shit, I better go back in and talk to the boss and get my job, right? I got a great job. And he had nothing to do with that. So then uh, I went from a really nice job to one of the one of the best blessings at the time that could have happened to me. I didn't realize it. But I got a job as a a pipe threader. I was threading black pipe on a new construction crew. And I can tell you that from that day to this day, I still work in the air conditioning business. And I have been blessed beyond my wildest dreams doing that. Um, We won't spend a lot of time on that other than the fact that it just, it was one of the first experiences in my life that I could look back on it and say, what a shitty day that turned out to be so much better than I ever thought it could be. And at the time, I didn't see that. So, um, got married, got kids. I got two grown boys. Um, they're men today. Uh, they're doing a great job. I started my own business when I was 24 years old. I quit the pipe threading deal. I had moved through that company and I was running the service department. Started my own business. And I remember the day I said, God, if I could just get this business up to doing about $3 million a year, I'll be set for life. I'll be good to go. I'll have the house I want. I'll have the family I want. Everything will be just perfect. And that happened when I was about 28 years old. And I remember deciding then, the thought crossed my mind of like, well, shit, this isn't enough. I don't have enough. I don't have the right cars, and I didn't have enough houses, and I didn't have stuff. I need more. And that began a stretch from the time I was 28 until I was 45 that I would wake up most mornings of my life trying to figure out what more I could get. And I have been uh, blessed. I am. I have uh, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about. It's hard to talk about. My sponsor says I need to talk about it because it's part of my story. But it, it's tough for me today because it feels it feels arrogant, greedy, whatever. It's not. Um, that's what he told me to tell you. It feels it though. 
So from the time I was 30 years old until the time I was 45 years old, I would make somewhere between a million and three million dollars a year. I could go wherever I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted. I could be whoever I wanted. What's that Kenny Chesney song? Brad Pitt's brother or whatever the hell. I did that for many years. And for many years, I didn't drink when I did it. I just did it because I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I didn't have a solution for it. So I spent money and blew money and did stuff like that. I got to be about 40 years old. Now, up until that point, I can tell you that I drank when I was 10 years old. I did. I can tell you that I got um, did all kinds of inappropriate things with people. Um, I can tell you all that. But I wasn't, I wasn't acting out my alcoholism my whole life, except for in moments. I was diagnosed as a binge drinker. I went to a therapist. He told me I was a binge drinker. I got a piece of paper that told you I was a binge drinker. That kept me away from these rooms for years. But when I got to be 40, and life looked like from the outside it should be perfect. There wasn't another house to buy in the town I lived in. There wasn't anybody else I could... There's just nothing more I could do. The more had ran out. I was out of more. And that's when I started drinking. And then the drinking, that's the only way I could make that lacking for more stop hurting. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. It can be I want her. I can't have her. I want her more. It hurts. I want a bigger business. I sold businesses. I sold a business to retire when I was 38 years old. Three years later, I bought it back. It's like, what the hell did you do that for? You got out of it. So... The business part of it, for me, has always been where I can be an adult. Okay? I can be an adult. When you go and see what brought you with me for a day, you'd watch a man in his early 50s acting like an adult, interacting with people at work, and you'd say, there's an adult. But on the inside, and the way I act in life and how I deal with problems, you would see a child. You would see somebody that found drugs and alcohol, that could make me cope with that shit. And I deal with all my problems the same way I did when I was 12 years old and my mom wouldn't let me go outdoors. And I would sit in there and I'd imagine who I was. I had, I lived in the middle of Michigan. Now there's a lot of lakes in Michigan, but I lived in the middle of Michigan and we did not go to the lake. For my 12th birthday, what do you think I wanted? A boat. I wanted an inflatable boat. That thing sat in my living room and I never left it for the summer I was 12. I imagined I was out on the lake, sometimes I was on the ocean, sometimes I was wherever. My point is, when I was 40, I dealt with my problems the same way. I pretended to be somebody else. Am I the only person in the room that has voices in their head? So, for years, for years, it was Larry. I had an alter ego. The voice in my head, I called it Larry. We would have conversations. Larry is excellent most days. He gets me from home to work. I don't have to think about it. Do you think about how to drive to work every day? No. That's Larry. Larry's got me. He'll get me there. Okay? Larry's also the one that when I get that third drink in there, Larry takes over. Third shot of tequila, it's game on. Because Andy's not with us anymore. It's all Larry. Larry does all kinds of weird shit. Larry dances on poles. Larry's, Larry's got some money moves, I'm telling you. 
But that's how I dealt with my problems. I would escape. I would escape, and I have done alcohol and pill, powder, and leaf form. I like them all. Okay? I don't care. So, uh, but my problem for me, when I left Michigan, um, so here, when I first told my story in 2009, I would have told you that I left Michigan after selling my business and moving to Phoenix. Sounds like a pretty cool story, right? Suitcase full of money, head to Phoenix. I left Michigan after selling what I could and going through a bankruptcy with almost a million dollars worth of debt. I lost my house, my family, my cars. You don't have to do that to qualify here. I'm just telling you what I did. But the difference was in 2009, at one year on my birthday, I shared from the podium that I sold my business. And I'm telling you today, that was bullshit. I lost that business. I lost everything I had. Um, I thought I had lost my life. What I didn't realize that day, when I lost everything and moved to Phoenix, I was still drinking at the time, but I would gained everything, and I didn't realize it then. So, moved to Phoenix, January 6, 2008. To this point, I'm 45 years old, I've never once, I might have been 44, never once thought I was an alcoholic, thought it never crossed my mind. I'd had uh, three DUIs in a 90-day stretch in 2005 to 2006. Um, I'd had all of these different signs. I'd been court-ordered 40 meetings, did those. I uh, had to go to therapy where I got con convinced them again that I was a binge drinker. And then um, on January 6, 2008, I got up in the morning to go meet a bar buddy, and I'm going to meet him at the bar for a Bloody Mary. We're going to have steak and eggs, a Bloody Mary, and I'm going to go home. So I went and met him there. We had a Bloody Mary. We had steak and eggs. And I said, oh, we might as well have one more Bloody Mary. So we had another Bloody Mary. And then he did something that to this day just baffles me. He went home. I said I was going home. And at that moment, I said, you know what? I'm going to prove to myself today I'm not an alcoholic. First time I'd ever thought that I needed to prove that to myself. And I had a conscious thought. I'm not an alcoholic. And I pulled out of there. It's a little bar in the neighborhood where I lived in Phoenix. And I drove across town and I went to the horse track. And I got to the horse track because I like to go to the horse track because that's a place where a non-alcoholic can drink like I want to drink and you just kind of blend in with the crowd, right? <laughs> so I got there. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning. I had a couple drinks, and I remember saying, you know, one more trifecta, and then I'm going to go home. And then I remember, so then um, I remember going to the bathroom, and I said, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to quit. That was the second time I quit that day. And I said, I'm done. I'm going home. And I came out of the bathroom, and then I had a few bucks in my pocket left. I thought, you know, I'm this could be it. I really, my favorite horse is coming up. I didn't know who it was yet, but I was, but I was going to get him. And I went back out and I placed a couple bets and I stayed there until about five o'clock. And in the meantime, I quit two more times. 
So then I left there. I finally did leave there. And um, so from the time I was 40 till about 45, what had happened was I'd been introduced to a drinking stimulant that allowed me to start blacking out. And it was a beautiful thing because if I could get it just right with the alcohol and then this stimulant for drinking, if I could get them just right, I could go for days. And it was really cool. Um, so, so somewhere in that afternoon I blacked out and I drove clear back across town and I ended up at a, a different little bar right around the corner from my house. And I do have some memory of quitting at least two more times that day. So it's my story. So I tell it like this. On the last day I drank, I quit seven times. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't stay stopped. And um, I finally blacked out. Because I would black out. I wouldn't really go to sleep. I would just black out. That's kind of how I functioned. And I woke up the next morning. And I had a nephew that lived in Phoenix. It's a whole different story. But anyway, a nephew that I had only spoken to him probably three times in my life. But I knew he was in recovery. And I got up that next morning feeling like I usually felt. I picked up the phone and I called him and I told him I thought I was going to die. Will you help me? So then then it skips to, so that's kind of how I was. I was crazy. I was never enough. I was never good enough. I was always too short. I'm too fat. My hair was too beautiful. I had to get rid of that. It was giving me a complex. <laughs> I had all that stuff, and I couldn't stop drinking that day. And that day, God gave me the answer. He said, yep, you're an alcoholic. And I finally got it. It stuck to me that day. So I reached out to this guy, Alan, who I love to death. And we are way closer friends in recovery than we ever were as family. And I called him, and I says, uh, I'm going to come over. You're going to help me. I want to get sober like you are. And he said, all right, cool, slow down. It was on a Sunday. He goes, here's what you're going to do. Tomorrow night, you're going to go to a meeting. There's a men's stag meeting in Phoenix at Crossroads. You're going to go to it. You're going to stand up. You're going to tell them you're new, and somebody's going to help you. I'm like, son of a bitch. Why won't he help me? And I had, a, I had my first resentment in recovery. <laughs> but I went the next day. So I went to the meeting. Um, I don't remember if I stood up. I really don't remember that. But I do remember that a guy came up to me after the meeting. He goes, hey, you got a sponsor. And I go, hmm, I don't think so. And he goes, well, you do now. He goes, um, you got a minute? Let's talk. And we went out and we talked for a little bit. And he didn't, he didn't fix me. He didn't cure me. What he did is he goes, where are you going to a meeting tomorrow? And I go, I don't know. Where is there one tomorrow? And he goes, well, they have meetings here. And he went and got me a meeting list. And then he had a little list of phone numbers because he was a home group member, and they had those. He got me one of those, and he gave me a meeting to go the next day. And he goes, hey, I'll meet you at that noon meeting. He goes, you meet me over there, and we'll get this going. So the first week, um, I had a temporary sponsor. And um, the following Sunday, I went to a Sunday morning meeting, and uh, my nephew had a friend of his from recovery that was in the air conditioning business, meet me there for breakfast. 
And we talked for about two hours right through the meeting, and we didn't talk about recovery at all. I connected with him because he did what I do. And uh, he goes, if you'd like to, why don't we go have some lunch? And then that's when my journey started on recovery. And that man became my first sponsor. Um, so back to those of you that are early, early in your recovery, okay? I've seen some of you around here working with sponsors. Awesome. It's the only way it works. And they read you this thing at the beginning of the meeting about if I don't read it from the literature, it doesn't count. I call BS on that. I have some things that I've seen. These are Andy's facts. Take them for what they are. I've never seen anybody put up long-term sobriety, emotional, dry, happy sobriety without a sponsor. Never seen it. It maybe happens, but I've never seen it. Um, I think here's how it worked for me. So that man took me to my first meeting that Monday night, the one that I had been to the first time, and he got me in there, and we sat in the front row, and he goes, hey, now tonight we're at a speaker meeting. This is what's going to happen. Here's how you act. Here's what you do. Okay? And then the next night we went to a meeting, and it was a participation meeting. He goes, hey, you ain't got shit these people want to hear. There's no whining. Just sit here with me shut up. If they call on you, pass. And we, and we went through that for a couple of weeks, and he taught me what the different meetings are. You will be surprised. Maybe I'm the only one that sits in one of these meetings and goes, what the, what am I doing here to begin with, and then what are they doing, right? What are they doing? That man taught me how to do meetings. That man taught me how to do the steps. That man taught me how to do life, right? When we sponsor somebody, we're not their daddy. We're not their mommy. We're their partner. We team up and we tack this thing as a team. It's a team sport. And it's full contact. You're going to be into some stuff that um, I work with service technicians every day, right? And I tell them all the time what they do. Last week in an attic in Air, here in Atlanta, that job, that's a man's job. Sorry, ladies. But it's, it's, I mean it by it's tough. It's hard. It's, some women do it. That's cool. But I'm telling you, it's full contact. It's hard. So is this. This is full contact. It's hard. You're going to feel things that you've never felt before. I'm nine and a half years sober. And I'm dealing with some feelings right now because I can't put a name to them. It's like, what the fuck is that one? <laughs> right? I sat in here about a month and a half ago on a weekend that um, I moved here. So I've left family. I've left friends. I've left relationships. I had a grandson, my first grandson born that weekend. Um, my dad was in the hospital having heart problems, and my mom's in assisted living dealing with that. And I didn't know what the hell I was feeling. And how did I get through that? Talking to another man that's in recovery to tell me, hey, dude, it'll be all right tomorrow. As long as I don't drink and I don't do anything real stupid, I'll wake up the next day and it'll get a little better, right? That's how my recovery works for me. So um, what's happened since recovery? And then we're going to get into some of the fun topics. So what's it like today? So if you remember, I left Michigan in 2006. with a, I had a million dollars worth of debt that I couldn't get out of, 
If you've ever been through bankruptcy, there's dischargeable items and there's non-dischargeable items. Me and my attorney weren't quite as specific with each other about how that worked. I ended up with a million dollars worth of non-dischargeable. Actually, that's not true. It was about $780,000, but the interest on it was compounding at a rate that by the time I got to Arizona, it was over a million dollars. And I remember sitting, and it was one of the things that kept me drinking for a while, was I'm, I'm working for my sister. She's paying me cash. We're going to just keep it under the table. I can do that for the next 60 years, right? Run my life out. <laughs> Not pay it. Switch bank accounts every three weeks because I kept finding them and swiping my money. <laughs> and one day, my sponsor and me were sitting there, and he goes, when, how free do you want to be? Call those people up, let's work out a deal, figure out what you can do, and go from there. And I'm like, well, they're never going to, they're not going to, they're not going to. He's like, have you asked them? No, but they're not going to, right? You ever heard that? Especially those of you that work with other alcoholics. (laughs) So what I started to do, and I was probably three years sober, I called them up and I negotiated a deal with them. And what it allowed me to do because I negotiated a deal with them where I was going to give them $1,000 a month for so long, and then it escalated, and then it escalated, and I was going to get it paid off. But I was going to be paying it. I was going to be doing my part. Who knows what the future holds, right? So I negotiated it down to uh, $200,000. No interest. Just start making the payments. And I started doing that. And then I go, you know what? I can't make enough money working for my sister. She owns a bunch of McDonald's restaurants. I was supervising those and stuff. I said, i got to get back doing what I do. I know how to make money. Get me back in the air conditioning business. So I quit my job. Quit my job. Got a job working in the air conditioning business for my sponsor. Not making anywhere near what I was used to making. Not even close. I was making about $42,000. But it got me back in the game. And over time, what happened in the next year was, does anybody feel like a piece of shit when they first get sober? (laughs) I had proven to myself I was a piece of shit. I'd lost my business. I'd lost my family. I had all the evidence laid in front of me. But what I grabbed onto was getting my job back got my confidence back. It got my swag back. I got my game back. Within six months, I had a new job. I was a general manager of a large air conditioning business in Phoenix. Now I'm making much better money. I'm paying off more of that debt. Not buying anything because I'm horrible with money. So now I'm starting to work my budget. I'm, I'm working it out. I'm paying my bills. And about two years later, I got an opportunity to move to Long Beach, California. And I wasn't looking for the job, but when it came to me, I'm going, holy crap, God, this is beyond my wildest dreams. I'm going to California, going to run this company. In those two years while I was there, I was able to pay off that debt, get to zero. How many of you in this room, if you could get to zero financially, would feel really good? For me, zero was a cool milestone. I wasn't worried about what cars I was buying, what houses I was buying. I just wanted to get to zero. So I stayed at zero up until a couple months ago. But um, <laughs> different, different story. So I'm in California, 
And I've got what I think is beyond my wildest dreams. It's, I, I didn't imagine it. It's a great lifestyle. I'm close to the beach. I'm working. I've got a nice job. But I'm not really doing what I'm good at doing. And um, an opportunity came along, which brought me here to Atlanta. And um, it's, uh, it, it doesn't always have to be the job or it doesn't have to be the big paycheck, right? It's just got to be open to, I am really open to whatever God puts in front of me, that's what I'm going to do. And for me, from that small town in Michigan, here's what the next right thing usually looks like to me. Get up in the morning, say my prayers, cuss him out a little bit, because my God can be an MF or bad. Because he's going to ask me to do a whole bunch of shit today I don't want to do. And that's God's will usually for me. Because if I do what I want to do, it doesn't look anything like what he wants me to do. So he'll ask me to put my hand out to a newcomer. I don't want another sponsee. Go to another meeting. I don't want to. I want to lay right here and watch TV. Right? That's how, next, that's how the next right thing shows up for me in my life. So what I learned in the earlier years of my sobriety taught me how to move to Atlanta at nine years sober and how to get involved. Now, I will tell you that for the first couple months, I kind of hid out in this room. Because there's somebody out here right now, you're not in this group. You're in this room, but you're not in this group. You're just hanging out in here because court told you to or wife's on your ass or you think you might have a drinking problem the way this thing works is you get right in it you get right involved in it because there's a um there's there's something that happens and it talks about it in the book when one alcoholic gets with another alcoholic and the only way you can ever get to where you tell the truth to the man or the woman sitting beside you is that you got to get connected with them you got to you got to build some trust I really believe that. I've seen a lot of people come in and start puking their problems on somebody and get a reaction that offends them because we are an offensive lot. <laughs> but then they leave the rooms and they don't have a chance to get sober. Somebody pisses them off at the first meeting. Oh, damn alcoholics. Anyway, they're a bunch of rude bastards. They pass that basket like they're begging for money every damn meeting I go to. Right? Money's a problem and all that. Here's what, I, here's what I believe. This is what got me sober. Another man. Period. That's what got me sober. What keeps me sober and what keeps me going is my relationship with my God, my higher power. It does not say, do these steps, stay sober. It doesn't say that. Does it? No, it says, having had a spiritual awakening... That's the only chance I have to stay sober. It's the only chance I have to go through a death, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a job, uh, the, just, the, just the feeling that I'm a piece of shit. The only way that happens is that I can stop, pause, don't react, and say, God, please relieve me of myself. Please, take it away. And I can reset at any point. How do I do that? Because I have a relationship with him. So now here's, here's the fun part. Now we're going to talk about the non-talkables. Religion. These are all my opinion, by the way, but in my mind, they're fact. Um, so we come into these rooms, and I've heard many people stand up here and go, yeah, I'm, 
You know, I'm a, I don't know, what, what do Catholics say? There's one that the Catholics say that I'm a recovering Catholic. Or, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't like to talk about religion. I talk about my higher power. Here's what I would like you all to do. If you think of, if you can remember one thing I said tonight, whatever your God contact is, it's okay. You can be Catholic. You can, you can believe in Taoism. You can believe in Christianity. You can be a Lutheran. You can be a Protestant. It doesn't matter. We say that to you, but you don't act like that. So I believe that you should be able to say, my God, Jesus Christ, Buddha, whatever you want, be comfortable with that. The more comfortable you get with your relationship with your higher power, the stronger that connection will be. Don't give a shit about what we say about it. Does that make sense? Just embrace it for what it is. I've been sober now nine years. I started out, it was God. All right, I can do that. God works. At about four years sober, I got baptized into Christianity. All right, I kind of like that. I'll go with the Jesus thing for a while. And then I started reading some books on Judaism, and I listened to some other stuff on Buddhism. And here's what I am today. Um, I like Christianity and um, the religious part of it, but my connection with my God is... Uh, it's a one-on-one, man-on-man conversation. And I use all of my learnings to connect to that. So it may be a gong meditation for me if I'm in that phase of my recovery. I've been there. Um, it may be um, I use physical. I can't sit still and meditate. But when I, can, when I walk physical movement, I can meditate with physical movement. So I have a treadmill. I get on my treadmill. I walk and I meditate. And some people will say, oh, no, you got to sit still and you gotta, you got to rub your follicles. And... <laughs> right? So with religion, it's, it's, whatever, it's whatever gets you connected to it because that's really what this thing's about. So it scares some of the newcomers, mm-hmm. right? Because you sit in here and you're like, I don't know what it means. I don't know what the steps are about. That's why you got to get somebody, Jeff. you got to be hooked with somebody arm in arm that can teach you this thing. And we'll just walk you through it. And what you'll get that used to piss me off is my sponsor would say, oh, I don't know how or when, but it'll be okay. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And then he'd tell me to pray. And I'm like, what the heck? But what I found was if I stopped doing dumb stuff, that's what he was really telling me. Just pause. Don't do anything more stupid. Your life will get better. Because we all want to fix it and do it because we're smarter than it, right? So stop doing that. If you stop, pause, pray on it, just pause. Just give it space. It'll get better. So for, for me, I would, um, I'd really encourage you to really grasp onto the whole thing of I'm a big proponent, if you haven't figured it out, of sponsorship. I'm a big proponent of friends. Part of that is because I'm an isolating son of a gun. I am much more comfortable at home alone than I am in here with you. Okay, so here's what I got, and we're going to wrap up. So I believe, here's another one of Andy's facts. I believe that if you look at the board and the birthdays, let's just look at the brown baggers, for example. How many years are on there? I can't read them. 
All right. But what is it? 16, 1, 1, 1 and something? Right? Then up above that, there's 6, 1, 2, 2, 1, 10, 2. Here's what I believe. I believe there's a whole bunch of us that get one or two years. And then I believe there's a group of people that get the 15 and beyond. And then I always find it hard to find a bunch of us. I'm in that area of right that that 6 to 10 range, which is very dangerous. Okay? So I know in my recovery, it seems like about every four years, I have to re-engage it, almost like I did to get sober. Because I started getting really freaking nutty. And I just went through that after I moved here. I went through a really nutty stage. And I've had to, I sat here one night, and I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not in the book. i got to be in the book with another man. That's part of my medicine to keep me sane. So I reached out to a guy and got me a sponsee. Um, I read the book. I got back into it. I did more meetings. But that happens at those phases. Then here's the part for those of you that are new in recovery that's the key for me. I can remember at about 60 days sober that I could breathe. And I'm like, this must be the pink cloud they talk about. This must be the spiritual experience. Right? This is it. I can feel it. I could breathe. Thank God I had a group of men that wouldn't let me slow down. They grabbed me and dragged me through that pink cloud. Because I still had work to do. I hadn't done the real work. The making amends and that stuff. I had work to do. So here's what I believe happens. At about 60 days, some of you it's going to be three weeks. Three weeks of not doing drugs and alcohol. Fuck, you feel like a million bucks. You've slept. You're, you're waking up, right? You've got your somewhat. That 60, 30, 90, whatever it is, that is not a pink cloud. It feels like one. I call BS on it. It's God's grace. He's given you a breath. He's given you a break. He's saying, hey, see how your life could be? Get to work. So don't confuse God's grace, that happy feeling that you get at that early moment in recovery. That means it's time to go to work. The spiritual experience is going to happen somewhere during the steps. It's not in the first 30 days. That's God's grace. We want the spiritual experience because at the end of the day, your sponsor's not going to keep you sober. The rooms are not going to keep you sober. God's going to keep you sober. And that's uncomfortable for some newcomers to hear all this God thing. I don't care what your God is. You can pick whatever that is. But I have never seen anybody get long-term, spiritual, emotional, dry time without it. And that's all I got out past.